called the king of the New Testament epistles, and for good reason. The letter is all about God and the good news that no matter who we are or what we've done, though we're all sinful and well-deserving of God's judgment, we can be saved from God's wrath simply by trusting in God's Son. We are put right with God through grace, through faith. Salvation is a gift from God. This is the message of Romans. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through this incredible book. Alrighty, it is that time to get started again, to dig in and get back to where we left off. In the book of Romans, we are halfway through the very uh, practical section of Romans chapter 12, and so we look forward to diving in as soon as we ask the Lord for his special blessing of help. Now, Heavenly Father, as we look at these ethical exhortations that are just piled up for us in Romans chapter 12, Lord, we're just lost without you. Uh, Jesus, you taught us that we can do nothing apart from you, and this is a paragraph that would really qualify. God, you're asking for things that we cannot do in and of ourselves, but can do by the power of the Spirit that you've given us. So help us to hear what your voice is saying, to be reminded of your constant availability to enable us to be the kind of people you created us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Most of you know that we spent nearly four years in Japan as missionaries, and as we prepared to move there, I had some questions about how I will be able to drive a vehicle there uh, legally, and so what's required, I found out, is simply an international driver's license, and there's no test, there's no review, there's no instructions. All you have to do is fill out the paperwork and pay a fee, and then you're good to go there in Japan. And so it was quite an experience, learning trial by error, a little bit, quite an adventure for sure. Now, in the U.S., foreigners who come to the United States, it's the same kind of thing, at least for three months, that they can get that international driver's license, and they're good to go. But nowadays, on the websites at least, Before they print out that certificate, they let you know, if you're a foreigner, here's some of the rules of the road here in the United States. And there was a list there, and so I just kind of was reading for entertainment. And uh, some of them are just so obvious to us, they're, they're funny. The steering wheels in America are always situated on the left side of the car, always drive on the right side of the road, This is good. It says never cross a solid or double yellow line. If you're driving in the far left-hand lane and somebody would like to pass you, move over to the right lane when it's safe to do so and allow them to pass, please and thank you. Amen? (laughs) Now, I like the way this one's worded. In the U.S., you must always yield to pedestrians. (laughs) 
unlike other countries, I guess. And then I love this one. Do not overuse your car horn. It says horns in the U.S. are used almost exclusively for emergency situations or when you feel unsafe. And then I added, or having a really, really hard day. Okay, one last one. I can't resist. These are good. Uh, traffic lights. It says, generally speaking, in the U.S., there are three colors to be aware of. Red, yellow, and green. Green means you may go through. Yellow means speed up and get through the, <laughs> the intersection before it turns what we call orange. Right, it's not all the way red, it's just kind of red, so we go for orange, you know, and we all know what that. Okay, summary statement on the website. It says, general protocols and road safety rules are universal throughout the world, but in the U.S. there are strict laws and serious consequences that back up some of these regulations, so take these general rules of the road to heart before getting behind the wheel and driving a vehicle in the U.S. Now, some of you may wonder, where is this going? Well, I'm going to tell you. If we use the phrase loosely, the general rules of the road, figuratively speaking, that applies to every facet of life, right? There are general rules of the road re regarding the way we play sports, the way we conduct ourselves at the workplace, and the way we live our Christian lives if we are saved and in right relationship with Christ. And that's exactly what this last part of chapter 12 is all about. From chapter 12 into the end of the book, we get the general rules, the commands, the standards of the Most High God for his people. If we are truly born again and belong to God, he has a way that he commands us to live. Not in order to save us, we're already saved alone by grace, by faith. Simply trusting Christ puts us right with God forever. Once we are saved by faith alone, then he brings commands, the rules of the road. Jesus is the one who said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's New Testament gospel talk. And so chapter 12 is going to just pile these rules of the road up so that we... We'll, we'll stay in our own lanes, the narrow lane that leads to life that few find. And so with that, we're going to take a look at what's waiting for us here in chapter 12, verses 9 through 16. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low 
position. Do not be conceited. And there you have it. Twelve rules or precepts, if you're more comfortable with that word, for Christians to live by. And so as you are getting settled uh, into this passage, here they are, the, the dozen or so standards that God expects. Now, when you say rules, you know, it kind of, you know, gives uh, Christians a little bit of trouble. We tend to bristle at the sound of the word rules, but that's what they are. They're in command tense. It's God, the Holy Spirit, writing through Paul commands that God intends. No loopholes, no, no, no exceptions, no justifications for in this circumstance here and there. These are straight on full thou shalt and thou shalt not New Testament style with a safety net of grace that we know that when we fall short, we are really made complete in him and that every morning, mercies are new. Every morning, he can erase the slate against us simply because we're in him. And it's up to him. But we have commands, nonetheless, to keep. And here they are, so that we can be more like him. Not to save us, already saved. But to shape us into who he's destined us to be. When we stand before him, we're going to resemble him. For we shall see him as he is, the Bible says. So we will be changed. This is the process by the taking this as a template and pouring our lives into this mold. This is how we are commanded. No suggestions. No, if you really can. You know, if you're feeling good that day, you had your devotions, and you really feel like pleasing God that day, no just this stark, naked command. This is how spirit-filled Christians live. And I do say spirit-filled because apart from being filled with the spirit, apart from Jesus' help, we can do nothing. We can never do this. I read this in staff before uh, service when we pray together. And one of the pastors said, you know, I've got trouble with every single verse. Because we need God's help to do these things. Amen. So we're going to get started by just taking a look at these one by one. At first, it seems like a, just a buckshot blast of moral, ethical exhortations randomly given. Uh-huh. No. They're all tied to the previous verses about being enabled with gifts, empowered by the Spirit in love. So... When you looked at these, and we're going to, you, we are going to get a clearer understanding of what biblical love is, very different from the world. But these, they're all connected to a manifestation of what agape in the Greek, God's love. So very different from what we have here is all about. So let's isolate and dive into the 12 components, the rule of love, if you will, the rules of the road for Christian living. Number one, the only kind of love that God cares about is the real thing. The word means genuine, sincere. Love must be 
and sincere. It's just worldly love can be faked. It's a lot of words. You know, politicians appear on a platform. One minute, there's smiles and hugs and air kisses flying all over the place, right? And in the very next breath, slanderous accusations that destroy somebody's reputation forever. That's not love. What you saw previously, that would be hypocrisy. In fact, one translation, the New American Standard Bible, puts this, love must not be hypocritical. That, that word means to be play-acting. So we all love you, man, love you, man, love you. We talk about it. It's very easy to give lip service, but he says, do not let your love be only in word, but let it be the real thing. So for the people of God, fake smiles and false motives and insincere words are out. We need the real thing. And so it's not for appearance sake. You know, sometimes we'll love in a fake way to show other people, oh, look how loving I am. Real love, man, not pretentious, not for show. Let's not merely say we love each other, but let's show it with our actions, 1 John 3.18. Now, genuine love's hard to fake, you know, because you've got to bless those who insult you. You've, uh, God's kind of love, uh, it takes a back seat when everybody's scrambling for the front seat. You know, it feeds its enemy. <laughs> it cleans up messes that it didn't make. <laughs> it washes dirty feet. And it asks forgiveness for those who are hammering the nails into its hands and feet. And then prays, putting its murderers in the very best possible light. Father, forgive them. They don't really understand what they're doing. That's God's love. And that's the kind of love that got poured into our hearts. And that's the kind of love that he experienced Expects and commands everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Here's what we did first service when we wrap up the first one and the second one. We're just going to repeat it together. Reading, love must be sincere. I'll give you a second chance because first service caught on a lot quicker. <laughs> just saying. All right, ready? Love must be sincere. The second thing here. He says, love and we must be discerning to know what's right and what's wrong so that we can behave appropriately regarding good and evil. But first, you've got to understand what good and evil are so that you can respond accordingly. And so, verse 9, be hate what is evil, cling to what is good. And so, the word hate there of the evil thing would be means to reject, to abhor, to loathe. It's a very strong word. It means to detest what is wrong, false, sinful, or evil. Right? Get rid of it, but hate it with a passion. And then cling, cling is a word that is uh, from the word to cleave, as a husband and wife cleave to become one. So it's to glue yourself to which is good, true, and right. Now, how am I going to do that if I don't judge? I have to make a judgment so that I know what to cling to and what to jettison with all hateful passion. That's what he says to do. And so now the pro 
the prohibition against judging, i.e., Matthew chapter 7, judge not lest you be judged, that's a different kind of judge, judgment. That judgment that Jesus cautions us against is to criticize unfairly, a rush to judgment that is concerned about the speck in everybody else's eyes. Whoa, there's a lot of specks in the air. While you're examining the specks, you've got this log that you're knocking people unconscious with because it's hanging out of your head like this. But you, you are so concerned about everybody else's problem. That's the judgment, he says. If you're that kind of critical mean-spirited, petty, picayune kind of person, you invite that behavior. So they're going to tear you apart and they see you coming. Judge not lest you be judged. That's what that means. Now, Jesus later says in John chapter 7, judge with the right kind of judgment. And this is what he's calling us to hear. How do we know what's good, right, and true from what's false, bad, and sinful? The word of God, not the blogosphere, not Facebook, not our friends and family, not some disgruntled pastors writing a new book. We go to the word of God and the word of God lays it out so nicely. And now I know from the, listen to me, the word of God, what things are right, what things are wrong, what things I need to glue myself to because of their goodness by God's definition of good and what things I need to be repulsed by. That's the word. That is loving. It is not loving to condone a behavior or a theology that will destroy somebody. That is not love. That is really disregard. So he says, I want you to be discerning. You must be. It's a command. Discern God's right and wrong. Love the right and hate the wrong thing, never the person. Always the mindset, always the sin, always the evil thing. One writer said, love is so passionately devoted to what's right, good, and true that it must hate every evil that opposes God's word and his will. So we have hard and fast moral boundary standards for right and wrong, and we have to... Hold fast despite all the pressure people are going to put on you to call good evil and evil good. And it's on us now. And a lot of people have already caved. Are you going to cave? You're commanded not to. You're commanded to hate it, even though the world says, no, 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 no. You love it. No, 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 no. I can love the person. I can be kind to the person. I can treat the person with respect. But I cannot call something God calls sin okay, but I can deal lovingly with everybody. Amen? Amen. Let's read that together. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. So there's a healthcare provider that uses the slogan on TV, hello, human kindness. And it's a nice commercial, but Paul is saying, the people of God got to take that up a notch. Hello, brotherly kindness, because the Bible teaches that all things being equal, love between siblings is one of the strongest bonds of earthly existence. Now, come on. Brothers, they cut each other slack. Sisters stand up for each other. Brothers can count 
on one another in a pinch. Sisters come to each other's defense. Brothers have each other's back. Now, do brothers fight and quibble and squabble? Of course. That's what brothers do. Do sisters do the same thing? Yeah, they do. (laughs) And brothers. (laughs) But at the end of the day, two brothers on a playground, and the bully comes over to brother number two. The good Lord have mercy on that bully. Why? Because God knit it into our hearts that we share something nobody else shares in the whole universe. And that's what he's implying here. Be kind to each other. Have a special love that devoted means full of affection and grace for one another in brotherly love. Why? We got the same father who called us out of the same darkness, who raised us from the same death and destiny of hell, took us out of hell, all of us in this room, out of hell to a place of eternal life. Through what? No wonder they say blood is thicker than water. It's his blood. Oh, we have the same father. We have the same savior. We have the same heaven. We have the same hell that we're not going to anymore. And that knits our hearts together like none other. I am closer to you than some of my blood relatives who don't know the Lord. Because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Then he says you ought to treat each other that way with over-the-top kindness, over-the-top letting things go, over-the-top overlooking offenses, over-the-top. Let's say that one together. To one another in brotherly love. Okay, we move on to, we must honor one another above ourselves. The world may be me first, you second, It's opposite in the kingdom of God because Christ came down and said, I didn't come to be served or honored. I came to do a deed and give my life away to serve. I am a servant and my disciples are not above their master. My mission statement was to honor those around me by serving them and finding value in them. One Wonderful translation says to outdo or surpass one another in showing honor. What does that mean? Well, Philippians 2, 3 gives the mind-boggling, do nothing out of selfish ambition um, or vain conceit, but in humility consider everybody else more significant than yourselves. Now, in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, there's a word selah. And what Selah has come to mean is stop and reflect. I think a Selah needs to go after Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, where it says, in humility, consider everybody else more valuable, more significant than yourself. Selah. Think about that. If everybody in the room, you are commanded by Christ to have this mindset that was in Christ, that everybody else is more significant than you at the moment. Wow, well, that prompts a whole different way of dealing with people if we honor them like that. What it means is eager to recognize, eager to give them uh, credit, uh, uh, enable somebody else to shine, even if you're going to step back in the shadows, even if you did a lot of the work and you want a little bit of the credit. The godly thing is just to step back into the shadows so that somebody else can shine 
to rejoice in somebody else, to praise their accomplishments, not to keep tooting our own horns because we're so insecure and want to be loved and admired. Want that for them. Build them up. Put them out there. That's what you're commanded to do. And when we don't keep commandments, we suffer. We don't lose our salvation. But, uh, you know, we can get into fender benders pretty easy. Amen? And worse than that, I wish it all it was was fender benders. That would be nice. Amen? One writer said, how do we honor those who are not acting honorably? The word honor, he writes, is tied to the word valuable. So even when love must bring correction, rebuke, or discipline, it's done with the highest regard for the person's best interest, with much gentleness, kindness, and holiness. For this is a soul, a person who bears the image of God, for whom Christ bled and died, and because of their intrinsic value to God, we keep honor in mind even in the most difficult, awkward circumstances. There's a way to do it. There's a way to do even that. Everybody together, honor one another above yourselves. Next we have, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. It really means keep the fire burning. Allow the spirit to keep you. The word zeal there is to boil over, to be on fire. This is a beautiful passage that reminds us that it is your moral obligation. It is a command of God to you being responsible to keep your spiritual enthusiasm for God. And why is it a breach of love for failure to do this? It's a breach of love because when you run out of steam, when you start to backslide, who does it affect? It affects your husband. It affects your wife. It affects your kids. It affects people around you. It affects the workplace. It affects the community. Therefore, because you won't fight your own battles, get down on your knees with your own, as they say, demons in quotes, there, deal with your issues, pick up your cross, deny yourself, Go see a Christian therapist. Deal with what's happening, but you should be hot to serve God all the time, and it's your responsibility and love, not only for your own good, not only because God deserves it, but for the sake of those who have to do life around you. That's what he's saying. Keep the steam going. You know, just these exhortations alone, you have the temptation to get overwhelmed with this relentless uh, command and expectation from God to do life his way. So the temptation is with the years for us to grow lazy. The word there, there, never be lacking is lazy and complacent because it's just too hard, you know, and I always have to do this and that and the other thing. Well, how does one stoke one's own proverbial fires, Okay. Number one, rehearse your story. Where did God find you? Whenever I've got the spiritual doldrums, I just reflect on my life. 19 years old, hating God, don't want anything to do with 
the church or whatever. And he came and he hunted me down like the hound of heaven that he is. And he grabbed me by the scruff of the neck, threw me down and said, you belong to me, right? And he just poured his spirit into me and gave me new life. I didn't deserve anything. Right now I'm encouraged right now. I'm all, I got some passion now because I went back to remember who I was, what God has done and what he's put up with. For 40 years, he's put up with a lot. Start thinking like that. And then if your story's not good enough, how about his story? He comes down. God himself incarnates himself into a human womb. And what comes from Mary is called the God-man bent on a mission to wash dirty feet and cleanse dirty souls by laying down on a piece of wood that he spoke into existence. Panting for air. The sun's going dark because its creator is having a hard time staying alive. And all the while, you're on his mind. That makes me want to serve the Lord. And notice that it's anchored. When somebody's on fire for God, it's anchored in humble service of holiness that manifests itself in things like, one writer said, when somebody's on fire for the Lord, here's what it looks like. Women are submissive to their husbands. They keep a tight rein on their tongues. Men who have crucified their lusts and selfishly cherish their wives who have mastered their animal passions and would rather die than defile themselves and disappoint their king. All of this talk about, oh, they're really on fire and with the spirit, the spirit, the spirit, and then acting in nonsensical, crazy, weirdo ways. That is not how the Bible defines being on fire for God. It defines it as holiness and self-control. If the fruit of the Spirit is all over you and you're a glow with the Holy Spirit, you don't lose control of yourself. You gain a strength of self-control because that's the fruit of the Spirit. But when somebody's on fire for God, they're serving God. They're serving their husbands and wives. They're shining the gospel at the place of work. They're not doing foolish, mindless things that distract us to them. That is never on fire of the Lord. That's a strange fire from a different altar. Amen. Let's read this together. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Okay. Now, the next one is a trilogy here, I believe. Be hopeful and be joyful in hope. Patient in affliction and faithful in prayer, verse 12. I really like this. It's three things, but one message. Here's how you get through it. Life is hard. A lot of things against you. Your own heart wants to sabotage the mission of God. The world has a plan for your life, and it has nothing to do with goodness and God. And the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The, the odds are stacked against you in one, on one hand, and then God says, uh, you know, a minority plus God is a majority. So here are three things that will help you. You have an obligation, a command, 
to make it through whatever thing that is in your path right now and will ever be in your path. You have a moral obligation to us to do what this, these commands say, to make it. Because if you run out of fuel, what happens when a plane runs out of fuel? It crashes, and, and it's not just you as a casualty. So he's saying as a moral obligation, here are three things that will help you. These three things could be sermons right there. Joyful in hope. He's already talked about this. He says, let the joy of knowing the blessed hope is right around the corner. John, the apostle, said, beloved, we're in the last hour. 2,000 years have elapsed. We are in the last seconds. Nations are where they belong. Israel, God's super sign to the world, is in place. Let the joy of knowing it's all real. It's all going to happen. And at any second, it says he's at the door, lightning from the east to the west, and every eye shall see. Let that joy carry you along through your adversity too. He says, be patient in affliction. The word means to remain under. Now, if you've asked the Lord to take it away for three times or to place it in your life three times and he's refused, then you need to remain under to bear your losses and crosses well, not with bitterness, not with disappointment and disillusionment, but as unto the Lord, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away just to have that attitude of one step in front of the other, not getting angry at God, but keeping your heart sweet and being patient. Faithful in prayer just means, man, sometimes the last thing you want to do when you're hurting and God allows something to go left when you want it to go right is to keep in fellowship with him. But talk to him about everything. That's what it says. Persist in prayer even when the lights go out and the emotions are gone and somebody does something stupid, foolish, or wicked. And even you slip and fall and do something dumb. Keep the line open to God. He can work with that. Let's read it together. Be joyful in hope patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. The next one is a fun one. Share with God's people who are in need. Here's the command that says just love. Love in our hearts is generous. It has to be. I like the word share there in the Greek. It's the famous koinonia word, and most Christians and only Christians know what koinonia means. Koinonia means life together that we are knit together, we do life together. It's the short word fellowship with one another. But here what's interesting that writers point out is, is that we don't have fellowship. It's not a command to fellowship with the people, but in the Greek it tends to say fellowship with the suffering, with the need. So there's a sympathy for so that we can participate in because you're not going to participate unless you feel what it's like for what they're going through. So uh, as 1 John 3.17 says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that heart? This is a core value. <laughs> you see somebody in need, you can't help every single person, but the Holy Spirit 
is so faithful that when, when he brings somebody across your path that's in need, he will communicate, hey, isn't there something you could do? You should always be having your radar on. Where's the need? Do they know the Lord? Do they not know the Lord? Where's the lack? Where are they hurting? Is there something that you've given me, God, whether a spiritual gift or an ability, something I'm good at, or a possession where it can help? You know, here's what it says. It says, share with God's people who are in need. If you have some money, or if you think that you make enough money, or if you're good at budgeting, or if by the end of your paycheck you have something left over, it doesn't say that. There's a command. If there's a need... You are obligated to do what you can do. And amazingly, we can do a lot, a lot more than we think. And so this is what he's saying is to have this kind of heart. Core value here at The Rock. We are benevolent, benevolent corporately, and we are to be merciful that way privately, Fire victims in the church, we had up to 40 families. We had $100,000 come up without fundraising. And every penny of that money went into the pockets of God's people who were in need. But that's not where we stop. I mean, just last week we said, hey, Christmas, during Thanksgiving, we made the same announcement. Put names in the box. People who are hurting, people are going through struggles right now. We want to bless them, bless them, bless them. And that's what happens with your offerings. That's the kind of heart this church has. Let us help one another. People are not alone. They're hurting. They need something practical. Now be warmed and be filled. That's why we partner with the Redwood Gospel Mission. That's why Adam took five minutes to tell you, man, if you want to help the poor and the needy in the community, most of them have been converted to Christ. You're helping and sharing with God's people in need. You may have to do it the day before Christmas or on Christmas, but if God puts it on your heart, there are ways to be a blessing. Let's read it. Share with God's people who are in need. We're getting there. We're getting there. I like this one. Practice hospitality. The word practice there, very interesting word. It means to pursue or to hunt down, and it's also used to persecute. So it's a strong, aggressive word, and hospitality. Now, this is interesting. There are two similar verbs in the passage to to show us how God wants us to disseminate his love. Now, the first one was Philadelphia, where we get brotherly love. Love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this word, hospitality, is in the Greek, uh, philoxenia. It means love of strangers. Now, the word stranger does a disservice for our understanding because when you hear stranger, we think danger. Stranger danger, right? (laughs) This word means the person you don't know yet Quite possibly, God has brought them and is seeking to save them. So he draws them to the church, to you, the church member, his member of his body, to reel them in. And so as people come into a church service or come into your lives privately, there's a reason God is drawing them to you because you have the answer. You have the gospel. (laughs) 
And if God's going to win anybody, he draws them to a Christian who has the answer in the gospel, but who is willing to show uh, this word has very little to do with the house. It's that open-hearted, friendly, inviting, I'm listening to you, you're valuable, accommodating, where we get the word accommodations. Accommodating. So tell me more about you. Oh, yeah, so you're a nurse? Oh, there are three other nurses that I know off the top of my head that go here. Come here. Hey, Janice, did you know she's a nurse? You're valuable. You're welcome. This is a friendly place. Why? Because the friendly God lives in our sometimes unfriendly, unwelcoming heart. And we have to let God win the battle in there to reach out, to pursue hospitality because it's so important. One person wrote it this way. Um, we show love to those we know, love we can relate to, but the Holy Spirit is constantly bringing new people into our lives and church services because God is drawing them to himself. God's magnets need to be magnetizing, not repelling. When somebody, he's just saying, look, it's easy to like people and, and spend time with them when you know them, but there's going to be somebody who you don't know and want you to have that same warmth and zeal more so. Invite them to come closer to you because they're coming closer to him. That's the point. An unfriendly Christian is an oxymoron. How can the friendly God, who has welcomed the whole world, who is called the friend of sinners. How can he live in our hearts and us be unfriendly and unwelcoming? Proverbs 18, 1 says, unfriendly people care only about themselves. They defy common sense. How does an unfriendly person defy common sense? Common sense is we need each other. No man's an island. Why would you be unfriendly to the human race to which you're connected. It doesn't make any sense to be unfriendly. There's no, it just, it's not wise and it's not godly. Practice hospitality means help those who are in your life to come closer to him. Let's say that together. Practice hospitality. All right, we're getting there. Come on, people. Blessed, bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. You know what I like about this? The little tagline of repetition. Because what he's saying there is, bless those who persecute you. Yeah, you heard me. Bless and do not curse. Because come on, you want me to do something nice for somebody just smacked me upside of the head? <laughs> somebody just insulted me. They're rude. They're self-centered. They're annoying. And then they're giving me a hard time. Persecute. It's kind of like to, to, to take one of those prods, you know, one of those uh, golds, to gold you. And he says, I want you to bless them. Now, blessing and cursing there, we have zero power to bless or curse anyone. Zero. You do not speak things into existence. You, you do not declare things over your Christian audiences. I have zero power to do that. To bless or to curse is to ask God, in this sense, to ask God that he show them their, his favor. To curse somebody in the Bible's understanding is to invoke God, to ask God 
to destroy that person. And he says, what I want from Christians is for you to be able to overcome evil with good. I want you to protect your heart from things like vengeance and bitterness and anger and hate, which is like Pastor Adam said, you know, unforgiveness and that kind of thing. It's like, you know, taking a pill of poison and hoping the other person dies. You've poisoned yourself, and God knows that we do it all too often. He says, keep your hearts sweet. Leave them to me. This is how Jesus worked. Peter tells us this. He says, though he was insulted and reviled, he opened not his mouth. He blessed those people and entrusted himself to the one who judges things justly. That's our pattern. They said terrible things. We don't answer them. We entrust ourselves to God and we say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Stephen, they're killing him with stones. And he says his last breath, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And commentators say that Paul, Saul, the murderous Pharisee was standing there guarding the coats of those who did the deed and he saw the light on that man's face and heard those sweet words, Lord Jesus, do not hold this against them. And they were changed. You will do great things that way by responding the way God has taught us to act, to bless those. A quick story. Uh, uh, Back in the day, I worked for Pepsi. I was a Pepsi guy for a couple years. I had a supervisor who persecuted me. He found out I was a Christian. I was involved in ministry. Every day, his job statement was this, to make my life misery. And he did an excellent job of it. Oh, he caught every little thing. And oh, all these insults and all of this. And I grew to not like him very much in my flesh. And so one day I, I, I was in the receiving end of Safeway in the city. And he had made a ginormous error, a huge error. And people were talking, trying to get to the bottom of it. Who did this? And I knew he did it, right? So I had the opportunity. They looked to me and the way it unfolded was I could either out him for the cockroach he is. <laughs> we're just talking here <laughs> or I could cover for him so it was like he's like Ryman, come over here All right. and the Holy Spirit's like has that ever happened to you well you know he'll let you win he'll let you win but I don't want him to win I, want, I don't want me to win. I want him to win. And he won by the grace of God. And so I covered. Well, guess what? He found out about it. And he came to me and he said, well, I heard. That's amazing. Amazing. Why? Because he persecuted me every single day with hate and profanity. And then what? You do something to kind of spare me? Wow. He didn't say it all in those words, but he is so happy 
so never persecuted me again and was open to the gospel, was just ears down, just like a little puppy following me around, you know. <laughs> now, come on. <laughs> Listen, I'll tell you what. That's what he means. Bless them. Leave it to God. He's very creative. He can handle them way better than you. And he says later on, that's my department. Vengeance is mine. Leave that to me. You keep your heart sweet. Let's read this together. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse. Yeah, don't do that either. Okay, next. This is a fun one because it seems like a no-brainer, but it's not. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Verse 15 now. Seems a no-brainer, of course. You know, he's saying, be happy with those who are rejoicing. Rejoice with them. Share their joy. Well, why wouldn't we? Well, because our hearts are wicked and deceitful beyond all things. Who can understand them? Jeremiah 17, 9. And so when somebody's rejoicing, they're rejoicing for a reason. Well, what's the reason for rejoicing? The reason for rejoicing is that they've got a new job, a job that's better than yours, a job that pays better than yours. The promotion that you wanted went to him, and he's rejoicing about it. Oh, somebody's getting married in the family. Oh, well, you haven't been married. You're not married now. You want to be married, but everybody's getting married. It's springtime. Everybody's on Facebook with their wedding gowns and all of their pictures, right? But, and they're happy. They're happy. Children are entering ministry, not sowing their wild seeds. And they're happy. Did you hear? My son is graduating from seminary. Well, that's nice. He says, get out of your own dark, coveting, envious, jealous heart and be happy with them. Be glad for them. Yes, it's not your situation. Yes, it was a little bit hard to hear that. But be happy for them because that's what makes God happy. And if you're not good at this, stay off of Facebook, my friend. <laughs> because everyone's putting their happy life out there. <laughs> yeah. Now, mourn with those who mourn. Why do we have to be told as Christians, hey, can you just stop and feel what the person's talking to you about, if they're talking to you about a brother who, who died, who was into drugs, can you stop to think, what would it be like to have my brother, my little brother, on drugs and then die in unbelief? Or so it seems. What if it was your mom who just got diagnosed with breast cancer? Well, we hear these things. We're distracted. We we're filled with our own ideas and our own selves. So he says, could you just stop and think what it's like to lose a husband you've been married to for 35, 40 years? What is that like? What kind of pain is that? To go home today from church alone and see the furniture where they sat and how the memories and all the pictures everywhere. But does he want us to... You know, go through life, uh, you know, weeping every five feet? No, we can't do that. But we can do a better job of sympathizing, listening. When somebody says, my nephew, it's like, oh, yeah, it's so 
far removed from my life and I got my own problems. He's saying, I command you, stop that. Stop with yourself and listen to the guy in front of you and feel it. And it'll prompt you to know what to do to be a blessing. Let's read that one together. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Two more, we can do this. We must live in harmony with one another. Here, here, here's what it is. The unity of the community or of the whole is more important than petty preferences, petty offenses, or uh, petty uh, little things that happen between us. The goal, oh, Paul tells the Philippians, you should be like one man serving the Lord, the whole bunch of you should be just so coordinated, so together. Look at the diversity. It's a call for harmonizing. Oh, man, I just look out. I see people who are in the mission. I see people who live on fountain, in Fountain Grove. I see different races in front of me. I see different income levels, different education levels. I see way diverse uh, vocational stations in life. But he says, and way different personalities. But he says, all of that, your primary focus should be how do, how do we blend together? How do we make peace? How do we overlook our, our shortcomings? So for the good of the whole, and we never make peace with sin, troublemakers who are sinning, false teaching. We never make peace with those kinds of things, of course. But the world says, oh, no, no, the new gospel, we make peace with everything. Everything's okay. Everything's cool. Just join hands, start singing, everything's cool. But it's not like, like that. Yes, harmonize. <laughs> In the essentials of life, let us get along together for the sake of the body. And we, we used this last week. One part of the body stops to do its own thing. The life of the person is in jeopardy. Just one part saying, hey, I got some issues. I'm going to stop functioning the way God intended me to function. The, the life and well-being of that body is threatened. So that's why he says, harmonize people. Let's read that together. Live in harmony with one another. Guess what, folks? We made it. We made it all the way. Uh, last one together. Let's read. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Yes, here it is. A call to humility. Again and again and again. And why? Because we have a tendency to get puffed up so easily. And that's what proud means. To be filled with self. To be filled with an exaggerated assessment of our own worth and value. Uh, conceited means to think you know everything, that you are God's gift to creation. Really, <laughs> do not be conceited. But here's the heart of it. The heart of it in community is not to be a snob. One writer said, um, few kinds of pride are worse than being a snob. And here's the definition of a snob, and it's exactly what it means. When he says, 
be willing to associate with people of so-called low position. A snob is someone, a person with an exaggerated respect for high social position or wealth who seeks to associate with social superiors and dislikes people or activities regarded as lower class. That is unacceptable in the church. It may be, uh, uh, it's even unattractive in the world, but there's no place for it in the church. Making social distinctions among each other is a wretched sin and a huge one at that and is counter to everything God stands for. Man, remember he said, the gospel has been preached in the world and Paul tells the Corinthians, have you noticed that not many wise, not many rich, not many noble, not many celebrities, not many high-minded politicians have responded? So instead, God has chosen the weak, the poor, the working class, the sinners of this world who understand that they're in need. He's chosen them. And so for us to make distinctions and want to hang out with the more, shall we call them, elite kinds of people, it's just a sin. It's very obnoxious and probably nauseating to the Lord who himself came down. Look at this. Christ, God, the second person in the God, it comes down, incarnates himself into a world where he could choose God chose. He chose that there'd be no place and he'd have to be born into a, 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 a stable that didn't smell very nice, a barn for God. Parents, not in a palace, but peasants. He worked a job against slivers under his fingers. And then what kind of body are you going to take on? A body without beauty, or attraction or majesty to attract us to him. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 2. There was nothing attractive about his physical appearance. He chose that, of course. And a crooked nose, maybe some crooked teeth. He wasn't, he wasn't handsome. And so we would take somebody like Jesus, the son of God, size him up, and then decide, roll our eyes and walk away because we considered him not much. It starts with us on the playground as kids. We want to hang with the popular kids, sit on, with the popular kids on the bus, sit at recess in the cafeteria. And for some people, that never goes away. Look who I'm associating with. So it's easy to want to be around beautiful, attractive, influential people for some, the obvious reasons. But he says, when Christ has come down and become an ordinary person... A working class citizen with, without a lot of charisma, except when he opened his mouth and raised people from the dead. Uh, <laughs> there was some charisma there, and some would probably say, oh, you should look at his eyes. You should look at his eyes. So what are we left to do? We're, we're left to obey the rules of the road. These are God's commands to stay in the lane not crossing any double lines so that it might go well with us and with those around us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Now, Father God, we thank you for these exhortations, these rules meant to give us life and freedom, not to restrict us,
but to set our hearts free. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.